Well, it is good to be here with you today uh, and uh, to get uh, called back or asked back. Steve said, hey, uh, they enjoyed you last time, uh, so uh, I'm going away on a well-deserved vacation, and uh, so uh, they wanted you back. And I was like, well, that's great, but maybe it's because I let them out early last time. <laughs> Steve has a hard bar of uh, sermon length. He's a marathon runner, right? I mean, he's a long-distance runner, and so when he gets started, he's 10 miles down the road before you even blink. Well, if he gives you a full seven-course meal, I'm going to give you a really hearty snack. <laughs> I used to uh, teach in the classroom, and there were times where I would walk into the class and I would say, well, I don't have a whole lot planned for today, so I might let you out early. Then I learned to never say that. Because in it, invariably, something would pop into my head, and I would talk about it for longer than I thought, and they'd be like, we're, we're only getting out like a minute or two early, or you let us out like a minute late. So I don't say that anymore, so I'm not saying that you're going to get out uh, early today, but, uh, but you certainly will be full, I think, by the time you are done. So um, you'll see on your bulletin cover, and uh, the scripture also that was read this morning is from Nehemiah. And we're going to look at a scripture in Nehemiah, and then we're going to go to a lot of scriptures from there. I'm putting a lot of them up on the screen so that you have them, um, so that if you're trying to flip through to find them, you can at least read them on the screen and maybe jot down the reference and read more of it later. And so Nehemiah chapter 13, the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is really looking at the people of Israel, the people of Judah, and saying, boy, they are really far from where God had intended them to be. And if you read through there, there's all these things that they were doing, all these things that they were participating in that were not godly, not respective of God, not reflective of the people of God. And so we're going to look at just a few verses here, Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning with verse 22. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In those days, I also saw men of Judah who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or other of the peoples. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck them, some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear to God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him even to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? Let's take a moment and pause and pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time today. Father, it is truly an honor and a privilege to be here and to be asked to bring forth your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, that you would guide me, guide us as we explore your word together. May the ears of those that are hearing and watching be receptive not only to the words that I say, but to the words that you are speaking to their spirit. In your name, amen. All right, so it has been said that Eskimos have many, many, many words for snow. Have you ever heard that before? Um, the idea is that it, since snow is such a part of their lives, that they need more words to describe sometimes the little nuances of the snow that they're experiencing. Uh, the reality, though, is that that's not true. Number one, there's no one Eskimo dialect. There are many tribes, and they all have different languages and dialects. Uh, and none of them have 
more words for snow than we would expect people to have uh, every day. We think that the idea of them having a higher vocabulary to describe snow came from one author who said that one tribe had a different word for snow that was falling versus snow that had recently fallen versus snow that was kind of packed down and had fallen a few days ago. And someone else came along and saw that and said, oh, and just kind of took the idea and ran with it. I've heard some people say as many as 500 different words describing snow. Um, but again, that's not the case. But it doesn't have to be the case. Because here in Pennsylvania, we have enough words for snow to describe, and we've had to use them this winter more so than we might have liked. Think about this. What comes to mind when I say the following words to you? Flurries, blizzard, nor'easter, slush, black ice, packed powder, sleet, freezing rain. Doesn't each one of those give you a, a, a mental construct, a mental idea that's different than the other one? So even in our context here, and we're not Eskimos, although this winter we kind of felt a little bit like it, we have enough words to describe that uh, weather phenomenon so that we can describe it to other people. Well, what's it like outside, right? We even will describe snow as good for sledding or good for snowballs or making snowmen or bad for those things. So our language about snow has grown so that it can accommodate our lifestyle and our needs as we go through life. I would expect that if you were to go where, somewhere where it's very warm, maybe let's say Hawaii, just random, <laughs> that the words that they would have for snow would not be as descriptive. Agreed? They probably just say snow. They know of snow, they've heard of it, they've never seen it. The closest they get to is a snow cone. <laughs> well, this story in Nehemiah uh, is about language. The people of God who had become so complacent with the laws of God that it seeped into every aspect of their lifestyle. It even affected their language and the language that their children spoke. Children who had a Jewish father, but a mother from a, one of the pagan tribes in the area. And instead of speaking Hebrew, they grew up learning how to speak this other language. The language that their mother or other parent was fluent in. I know a family, generations, four generations, where the oldest were immigrants from another country, only really spoke their native tongue, might understand one or two words of English. That was the grandmother. And then the mother, it was still her native language, but she had learned English. She could say a few things in English uh, and express herself. She would understand what other people were talking about at the dinner table. And then there was the daughter whose first language was English. But she could understand when her mother and her grandmother were talking. She would know when they were talking about her, when they were saying something bad. But she wouldn't be fluent in expressing herself in that language. And then there was the granddaughter, who not only was English their native language, her native language, but the, really the only language, and maybe just understanding one or two words of grandmother's tongue. Do you know a family like that or a situation like that? Uh, it's interesting how in just the span of a couple generations, their entire language reference flipped. And it flipped because the language of the younger family members used and heard used on a daily basis was different from the language that had been the traditional language in the family. And that's what we see going on in this passage in Nehemiah. The language of God was giving way to the languages of the other peoples. And that language didn't just change their words. It changed their entire framework 
for who God was and how they were to obey God. Because the Hebrew language all points to Yahweh, right? I'm talking today about language lessons. That's the title of today's message. There are several places in the Bible where we learn that our language is a very strong representation and reflection of both our character and our spirituality. And we're going to look at a few of those passages today. And as we explore them, I want to propose to you that there are at least four, maybe more, but we're going to talk about four aspects of language that reflect more the world's perspective and do not reflect the language of the people of God. Are you ready to explore them with me? Let's begin. The first one is cursing. Now, I don't need to ask if anybody has heard recently, right, people cursing because we just had a wonderful example of that happening. Uh, We've all probably known someone with a foul mouth. We've worked with them. They're in our family. In fact, some people, this is so much a part of their language that they cannot end a single sentence without having a choice four-letter word in there. You know this, right? You've experienced this. Some may use the phrase, pardon my French. But to try to suggest, well, this is not normally how I talk. This is another language, and I'm just using it for emphasis. But it soon becomes apparent that all they speak is French. Now, while it's still not 100% acceptable, right? There are words that you're not allowed to say on broadcast television and, and radio, right? But many of us have become very accepting of it entering our ears or even coming from our mouths. Maybe we sugarcoat, sugarcoated profanity, right? So we're not saying the really bad word, but we're saying something in replacement. Does that really change it? You know, the word profanity is actually the Latin word for not sacred. So that even emphasizes this aspect that we're not speaking the language of God. Now, if you think about it, there are categories of curse words. Things that you're not allowed to say on radio or TV. It's interesting that these categories for swear words are um, across languages. So that if you are learning another language, their use of curse words is very similar to what we have in English. First, there's a whole group of words that are either parts of the body or bodily functions. We're not going to get into them. This is not a demonstration here today, but you know them. You know what I mean. Now, imagine this because we are made in the image of God, and yet the enemy is taking that image and making body parts, bodily functions be swear words. Think about that. Another group are what I call perversions of intimacy. God's gift of intimacy to humans, and the enemy says, no, I'm going to take that, and I'm going to twist it around, and I'm going to have people take that gift and make it be a curse. Think about that. Make it dirty or ugly. The last group is the clearest violation, I think, of the language of God because they are names and references to God or Jesus that are used as curse words. Imagine what the angels in heaven think when they don't even utter the name of Yahweh because it is so sacred and they hear people on earth using it as a curse word to say the word Jesus or Lord or God. People will say OMG or what that stands for so easily. And it's not a prayer. It's just something, oh, well, I didn't really mean anything by it. Yeah, well, that actually might make it worse. People don't go around saying, oh, Buddha or oh, Mohammed, right? They use the name Jesus Christ, the most sacred name ever. And they turn that into a curse word. Now, I remember when our sons were younger, 
they quickly understood that the words that they were hearing that were not supposed to be spoken fell into these categories. Uh, and uh, they were pretty upset, especially about people saying, we would watch a movie, and all of a sudden one of the characters would blurt out the name Jesus as a curse word. And they would be upset about that. In fact, I remember Brian, who's here today, uh, f- decided that he was just going to come up with his own swear word that didn't violate some of these principles. That instead of defiling God's name uh, or the beautiful creation that he's given to us, he would just make up something. And so his answer was, oh, snail guts. <laughs> right? So he tried that for a while. Um, uh, but, you know, second grade, they're a fickle crowd. And it didn't really catch on like maybe we had hoped. But around the house, you would hear an occasional snail guts. Um, And if you want to use snail guts instead of some other word, I think you have Brian's permission, right? You can can do that. Let's look at some scriptures about language. So Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For what out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? Listen to your mouth, and then you'll know what's in your heart. Listen to someone else, and you'll quickly learn what is in their heart. Now, we're going to go over some language definitions today. So I have a couple definitions for cursing. The first one is packing emotions that we wish we didn't feel into words we wish we didn't say. Think about that, because sometimes that's true. You're in a situation, it's not great. Something just happened, someone hurt you, someone did something wrong to you. You want to express what you're feeling, and you're putting it in to those words. Out of that emotion, your mouth starts to even form the words before your brain even can tell it what to do, right? Stub your toe, what happens? Step on a Lego brick on the carpet, what happens? Go to hit that nail with the hammer and you hit your thumb instead, what happens? It's at those times that we can learn what is in our heart. And we can pray that God would purify our hearts. So that's one definition. Another definition because not all cursing is the same, is feeling the need to express something so explicitly for fear that otherwise it won't be taken seriously. Isn't that true? People add an expletive in there so that you know that they're serious, that this was really something bad that happened to them. We live in a world of hyperbole where everything is taken to extreme so that there is no longer any extreme. In National Public Radio's Lake Wobegon, every child is above average, which is mathematically impossible. In the world that we live in, everything is the best or the worst. If the Easter morning headline was rewritten today, it would read something like this. Three women went to a graveyard. What they found next will shock you. We have to make everything such hyperbole. Even everything in our world has to be so overemphasized to compete with everything else that is so overemphasized. So when we're hurting or when we're happy, it's not enough just to say that. We feel the need to put in a word to make it on par with the other words that we're hearing from other people. Is that right? Is that the right thing to do? Is that the language that we want to be fluent in? Let's look at some more scriptures. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, 
because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is what? From the evil one. Exodus 20, verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So when you are tempted to say OMG or text it, think twice. Think about what is it that is in your relationship with God that would make you want to make that, take that lightly. And again, People say, oh, well, I didn't mean anything by it. <laughs> that doesn't make it any different to those that are hearing it. If you're praying, oh, my God, please help, then that's different, right? You're invoking the power that is the name rather than using the name devoid of its power. I remember once I was driving back to college and I was heading to New York uh, State it was probably after Christmas, and so the roads were a little snowy, uh, and that was not uncommon for that stretch. But there was a particular uh, road where we were driving. I had someone else in the car with me. We were going back to college together. And while the snow was generally fine, no problems, there was one, I think we went under an underpass, and the, the road must have been particularly frozen there, and this car started to skid. And I tried to steer to correct, right? Takes you a couple seconds to realize what's going on. And it kept skidding and it started to spin. Guess what I said in that moment? It wasn't a curse word. It was a prayer. It was a one-word prayer. Jesus! That was the first thing that came into my mind. Because I knew that I needed help. And after a couple seconds, which seemed like five minutes, the car came to a stop. We were facing the wrong way, but that was okay because there were no other cars on the road. Nobody else wanted to dare travel except for the college students going back to campus. I looked over at the, the girl sitting next to me, and uh, she was shocked. I don't know whether she was more shocked at the skidding and sliding or at me shouting because it was loud and very sincere. Um, I was invoking the power of Christ's name. I was not using it in vain. Now, if you find yourself in a similar situation and you want to shout out the name Jesus as a supplication for help, then by all means, use God's name. But if you're using God's name as a replacement for some other word or to make it sound more serious, then maybe you want to rethink your vocabulary. Here's another scripture. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? He's, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which can defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile a man. So Jesus Christ is emphasizing your words are a reflection of your language, and you should have the language of the people of God. Now, as we go through these, and remember I said there's four, uh, we're going to try to turn over a new leaf. So today, I'm going to talk about actions that we can use to change our native language and hopefully return to the language that God wants us to speak. The first turning over a new leaf has to do with cursing. So instead of cursing, try to let the emotion of the situation subside before you put it into words before you speak from the heart. Pray 
even in advance, that God would give you a pure heart so that in those situations you speak purely instead of speaking curse words or empty uses of God's name. And let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to emphasize. I had a really good time. I had a really bad time. You don't need to describe it more than that with a swear word. All right, that was number one. Number two, gossiping. This is another type of language, type of communication that is very prevalent in the world today. Uh, And it's not an aspect of communication that God wants his people to participate in. So let's look at the definition. I learned this definition years ago at a Christian conference Sharing information with another person who is neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. If you think about it, it rings true. Gossip is so prevalent today, though, that there are tabloid magazines that are basically filled cover to cover with gossip. They even have things and people read things called gossip columns. They don't even try to hide it. We're so used to it that we never stop to think about whether what we're saying about someone is right or wrong. We're, we're just making conversation, right? Here's what the Bible says. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Does that sound like gossip? Does that sound like anything remotely related to gossip? No. I like this aspect of what is good for edification, building others up. Now, there is a special type of gossip that is a virus in the church. It goes like this. Let me tell you something so that you can keep this person in your prayers. Have you heard that? (laughs) Have you said that? The reality is, um, I don't need to know all the scuttlebutt about you and what you're doing and who you're doing it with and what you're wearing while you're doing it in order to pray for you. The fact that God knows well what you're up to I can just intercede on your behalf and let God figure out the details. And if you feel that you don't know enough about how to pray for a person, well, God gave us a solution for that too, right? If you don't even know how to pray, God will give you the language and the words that you don't even know to be able to meet that person's need at that moment. You don't need to know all the details. And so if somebody is sharing something with you and you're not part of the problem and you're not part of the solution, then maybe you need to rethink that part of your vocabulary. James 1.26 says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, deceives his own heart, and this person's religion is useless. So you may think that you say all the right things, but if you say enough of the wrong things, you are belittling your own spirituality. You are reducing your own spirituality. So here's what I want us to try. If you have a problem, try talking to the person with whom you have that problem. The Bible even says, go to that person, right? And here's the other part of it. If it's not your problem, then maybe you shouldn't be talking. Right? So we have two down and two to go. So you may say, well, you know, I don't really curse and I don't gossip. Well, just hold hold steady. We've got two more uh, that we're going to talk about. Uh, And there's probably something in this sermon left for you. Complaining. Oh, why did he have to go there? I'm not complaining. I'm just venting. 
right? How many of us like to vent? Yeah, my hand is up, by the way. Yeah. Once in a while, yeah, I just got to vent. Uh, I mean, complain. So here's our definition. Complaining, attempting to make a situation better by telling someone else how truly bad it is, how truly horrible it is. Doesn't do anything, doesn't change the situation one little bit, does it? Makes you feel better for about five seconds. And by the way, if we're venting and complaining, it's probably real easy for us to just throw in a little slice of, of gossip about that other person that we're complaining about while we're at it. So uh, take that situation that I just showed you of a, a person in a restaurant. You've probably been in a restaurant where maybe the service or the food was a, not up to your standards, and it's real easy to just want to complain. It's a natural instinct, especially if you are speaking the language of the world. Wait, I, I'm the customer here. I deserve better. How dare they not bring us our drinks? It's been over 10 minutes. How dare they cook my burger medium when I clearly said medium well? Uh, how dare they not take off my buy one, get one coupon? Right? That's all things that we might complain about. Now, there are so many verses in the Bible about complaining, specifically about the Israelites complaining, that I'm not going to go through them all, or maybe it would be up to par with one of Steve's messages. But um, here's one that I'm going to mention, which is from Numbers 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. We could probably stop right there. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. And so the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them in the outskirts of the camp. Ouch. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. Do I need to tell you that anything else to convince you that God particularly does not like complaining? The ground opened up and swallowed some Israelites. I mean, he really does not like complaining. Oh, that we were back in Egypt. Really? Do you remember what it was like in Egypt? Oh, that we had something else to eat. Really? I'm giving you manna from heaven. And you want something else to eat. We will always find something to complain about. Now, if you are a parent, you might understand God's short fuse for complaining. Because when your child is complaining about the food that's on their plate, or I don't have anything to do, I'm bored, or whatever it may be, after a while, it just really strikes a nerve. And I almost think that God feels that same way. Look at what I've given you, and you're going to complain about it. Now... It's interesting, though, that if you really dissect a complaint, there's a request in there somewhere. And so my try this for this particular case is, instead of complaining, go, again, to the person that's going to be able to make the difference and make a request out of humility. So... I wish um, that this meal was properly cooked. I wish my boss would respect me. I wish that this person wouldn't curse so much when they're around me. Those are all complaints, but they all have a request built in. So instead of complaining, which isn't going to really make the situation any better, it makes us feel better for a little while, instead of that, try to make a request out of humility. So excuse me, I see that you're very busy here tonight. I'm wondering if you could take a moment and ask if this burger could be cooked just a little bit more. I know that I would enjoy it a whole lot better if it was. Now, after your server looks at you with this look of puzzlement, 
they will probably take your burger back to the kitchen. But that's better than, this burger is not cooked right. You need to take this back to the kitchen and tell that cook to cook it again. Right? There's a difference there. One is a complaint, grumbling. The other is a request made out of humility. Or, hi, I'm, I, I'm not sure if you realize this, but every time you com, uh, constantly reference my age in our staff meetings, it makes me and other people in the room think that you don't respect what I bring to the table for this department. And I'm wondering if you could maybe refrain from doing that so that we can clearly project that we're all on the same team and we're all fighting and working toward the same goals. Right? That's a lot different than just complaining about it to somebody else. That's making a request out of humility to try to accomplish something good. That's more of the language of God. All right, one left. Critical judgment. So we had cursing, we had gossip, we had complaining, and now we have critical judgment. And when I say critical judgment, I need to stop because there's that verse in Matthew 7. It says, judge not lest you be judged. And we all seem to know that one by heart, especially when somebody else is judging us. That's right on the tip of our tongue to quote back to them. So we can start to think from that verse that all judgment is bad. But that is not the case. You use judgment every day when you try to decide, can my car fit into that parking space? (laughs) Hopefully your judgment is sound. Um, But that is totally fine. We use judgment every day when the clerk gives us back our change for those of the few of us who still pay in cash. Uh, And if they gave us change for a 10 when we gave them a 20, you know that we're going to make them realize that, right? That's using judgment. That's not wrong. Or every time you open an email and it's from some prince from another country asking for your financial support. You're using judgment, right, of whether this is good, real. It's not bad to do that. So what's the difference between using judgment and critical judgment? So critical judgment, the definition is attempting to increase your own stature by belittling someone else. And by the way, I say down there, it does not work that way. It's not going to accomplish anything in terms of making you feel taller or better or stronger. Now again, there are a lot of examples that I could give. I'm going to focus on three. From the life of Christ, because Christ had every reason to give critical judgment of other people, but he chose not to do that. So let me give you a couple of examples. Zacchaeus, remember him? Tax collector, little guy? Climbed the sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus as he walked by. Jesus looks up and sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to stay at your house today. By the way, Jesus invited him over, himself over to somebody else's house. Just want you to know that. And Zacchaeus comes down. He wasn't pre- prepared to make a meal, but boy, he gets everybody at his house engaged and they prepare a meal and Jesus sits with him. And Christ's impact into his life that day is so profound that Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give what I have to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back. And that was with zero criticism from Christ. Here's another example. The woman who comes in to Jesus, cries on his feet with her tears, pours perfume, and wipes it dry with her hair. 
And what did the people around do? If you knew what manner of woman this was and what type of life she leads, certainly he would not let her do what she's doing right now. Did Jesus have reason to give critical judgment? Absolutely. Did Jesus give critical judgment? No. He even uses her as an example. I came in and no one anointed my feet and she has not stopped kissing my feet since I've been in here. Do you think that that had an impact on her life? Do you think that it had more of an impact than critical judgment? Another example. The woman who came and touched Jesus in the crowd and then was healed. Now, this woman, because of her medical condition, was unclean. She should not have even been in the crowd, let alone touching other people, let alone touching Jesus. I think she knew that, which is why she says, I don't need to touch him if I can just touch one thread of his garment. That's all I need. I don't want to make him unclean. I just want to touch the hem of his garment. I love this passage because people are touching each other all over the place, but this was a different kind of a touch. This was a touch of faith. And Jesus immediately says, I felt power go out of me. Other people were touching him. He didn't feel power going out when they were touching. And yet, one tiny little touch of this woman, and he feels the power go out of him. And he turns around, and people are even like, what are you, crazy? What do you mean, who touched you? And finally, the woman says, it was me. And she begins to tell all of her life story, all the doctors that she went to see, that no one could cure her. And what does Jesus say? Critical judgment? Why were you even here? You shouldn't be here. You should have gone to the priest and and asked them. He could have given critical judgment, but instead he says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Romans 12.3 says, For I say, through the grace given me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. If you believe that, then when you have the opportunity to critically judge another person, whether they be a believer or not, you will take the position of Christ. And even though Christ could have been critical, he chose not to be. So try this. Instead of giving critical judgment, and you know, we'll often take, this one is like a, a hat trick of uh, because we could do critical judgment, we could throw gossip in there and maybe a curse word along the way and a complaint, right? I mean, we can get them all in here if we really tried hard enough. But instead of that, try seeing the person as Christ sees them and then contribute to their development instead of criticizing them for not already being developed. Wouldn't you like someone to do that to you? I would. And I do when people do that. That they say, you know, yeah, you messed up. But let me tell you how you could do that better or how you could make some minor changes to totally change the direction that you were heading. So get some practice doing that for other people. So the question today is, are you more fluent in the language of God or in the languages that we hear in the world? And we've given four examples of language conversations that are very acceptable in the world, but shouldn't be acceptable for the people of God. 
What language do you want to be more fluent in? That's the question. Now, I'm sure Stephen has told this story probably more than once because uh, it's an illustration that I know he likes. Uh, he used to tell the story that when uh, he would go without drinking soda for a while because he was running. And he would go months, maybe all summer, without having a single soda. When he, at the end of the season, would pick up a soda, and it was always Coke, you know, not never Pepsi, always Coke. And he would drink that soda for the first time. He says, oh, it burns. It doesn't feel good. You sit there and say, oh, wait a minute, I liked this? I used to drink this every day? How did I get used to this? Language is the same way. We can easily desensitize ourselves to drinking carbonated beverages, and we can easily desensitize ourselves to these aspects of language that the people of God should not be participating in. And we can easily get used to it. We just become complacent, and they creep into our lives, and maybe we didn't curse before, but now, you know, even that once in a while. I have this reputation at work where people will curse and they will say, sorry, I know you don't curse. And I'm like, when did I have a sign on me that says I don't curse? Because I didn't, I mean, they know that my wife is a pastor. So maybe they just make that connection. But I always have people apologize. Oh, sorry, I said that. And I know you wouldn't use that language. And it's interesting because I never said that I didn't curse. I just think that there hasn't been anything bad enough that's happened for me to actually curse. Now, I'll tell you, if you get, wanted to see me curse, it would probably be about the enemy and the things that I see him doing to people's lives. That would get me so emotional that I might use a word, but it would be in cursing the enemy, not in cursing people. So here's what I want us to do. Try going a week or two Without speaking one of those languages, maybe two of those languages, if those four things, if there's one or two that kind of struck your heart, oh, you know, I do this. I do it more than I really should. Well, try very hard and pray that God would help you to go a week or two without having that taste in your mouth. And then see how it tastes when you do say those things again if you let a curse word slip. Because I guarantee you, if you're conscious of it, if you let the taste get out of your mouth for these types of things, when you curse or you complain or you give critical judgment, you're instantly going to say, wow, I don't like that. And it will give you the power to get that language out of your vocabulary entirely. Let me end with another scripture that I think sums this up for us. From James chapter 3, verses 3 to 12. We put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, and it sets on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire by hell. And it goes on, For every kind of beast and bird reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But I, I think of uh, the killer whales, right? Could rip those trainers to shreds, and yet they jump through and do all the tricks. But no one can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. 
Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. These things ought not be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No spring yields both salt water and fresh. So what type of water, what type of language do you want to have? If you start to move your vocabulary and language away from the dialect that the world uses, you'll start to be fluent in the language of the people of God. And if you do that, you will actually gain more than you lose. Because in the language of God, there are words that have more meaning than the world can ever place on them. God's dictionary has words like grace, mercy, eternal life, forgiveness, peace, love. Do you want to know the full meaning of those words? Then speak the language of God. Take lessons. Ask God to teach you the depths of his vocabulary. That's the only way that you'll experience these words in all their glory. Amen? So we're going to go to prayer, and um, we're going to pray in a minute for God to help us with this very aspect. You alone know what part of today's message struck a chord with you. Maybe you have all four. Maybe there's one. Maybe you're pretty good in a lot of them, but boy, there's this one. You like to vent. We're going to go and ask God to help us together.